0: Amen. Take your Bibles this morning with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin a, a series of series this morning uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And so the, the overall series on the Sermon on the Mount will begin this morning, uh, but there will be sub-series within this. And so our first series uh, is the Beatitudes. And so we're going to be spending the next several weeks uh, as we as we enter now really into the heart of the fall season on examining uh, Jesus' outline for ministry, uh, and so when he uh, when he comes here and begins his his really this is the first the first full preaching that the Bible records for us of the Lord. This is very early on in his ministry. We'll see that in a moment. Uh, but he is, he is charting a course that he's going to follow over the next three years. Uh, and so we, we want to kind of look at this. We're going to look at uh, different things through this. There's going to be some messages, of obviously, if you read ahead in chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, cover the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. And so there's, uh, there are things about relationships. There are things about prayer. Uh, And so we're just going to kind of break those things down one by one and make our way through this and not be in a particular hurry about it. And so uh, I hope it'll be helpful and it'll be something that helps us all to get our focus and attention on the Lord and his way of doing things so that we can be a people that are growing. And so it's it's all pastors and ministry leaders want to see their church grow numerically, but more importantly, are we growing spiritually? A, a, A church can grow a lot numerically and everybody remain infants in their walk with God. And that's not really the goal. I don't believe that that's what the Lord intends. Uh, and we certainly want to be reaching out to newer folks and to see people saved and things of that nature. But we also want to be growing on this journey that we're on. Whether you've been saved for a few days or whether you've been saved for a few decades, we ought all to be growing uh, in, in our, our walk with God. and so. As we begin this morning here in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look uh, at the first 12 verses really for probably about the next 4 to 6 weeks. We're going to be looking at these first 12 verses. We're going to look at an overview this morning and then focus really in on verse number 3. Next week we'll come back and hit verse number 4. So I'm going to say a lot in in the introduction that you may miss today. It may be too much to kind of get written down if you're a copious note taker. Uh, but it will be repeated from week to week as we kind of make our way through. There's some things I want to just kind of soak into our head. So I, whenever I start next week and I start reviewing some things, I haven't lost my mind. I didn't forget what I said today. Uh, I'm, I'm intentionally trying to plant some thoughts in our mind that will stick. Uh, and so I just uh, kind of bear with me as you, we make our way through there. Uh, but Matthew chapter 5 beginning here in verse number 1. For they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you. And shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And again this morning we begin with the Beatitudes. And the title of the message today is poor in spirit but rich in opportunity. And let's pray. Father thank you again for this time together. I pray that you would help us to set aside the busyness and the, the hurriedness of our minds, Lord, we've all got all kinds of things going on in life, with our families, with work, with uh, problems, with blessings, just a, all kinds of concerns and uh, goals and plans, but to, for this next 45 minutes or so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us just set it aside, uh, that we just, just lay it out of our hearts and minds, and may we give our full attention to you. And Lord, may you speak to us, Holy Spirit, may you open our eyes to your word, may you illuminate the truths and the principles of this passage to our heart, and Lord, may you help us to be a people that are hungry to grow, to know you in a deeper way, in Jesus' name, amen. When you look at what's taking place here in Matthew, Jesus, of course, is, we're given his, the account of his birth, uh, the miraculous, supernatural birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're giving uh, a, a, an account of the genealogy of Christ, which is... Boring reading unless you're in an in-depth study, Uh, but it's important because it establishes his right to the throne of David. There have been uh, years, uh, centuries really, since there's been a legitimate king on Israel's throne. And when you look at the breakdown of the timeline of what's taken place, you've got... You know a period of around probably 400ish years of the patriarchs and then you move into 430 years of Israel slavery in Egypt and then uh, when they came out and they wandered the wilderness for 40 years the book of Joshua it it covers a period of time that's about 23 to 6 years somewhere in that time frame so you're looking at about uh, from the leaving and the departure of Egypt to the, the conquering or the the partial conquering of the promised land until the land is divided up of about uh, of about six, 75 years, somewhere in that 60 to 75 years. And then you move into the book of Judges. And the book of Judges itself covers a little over 300 years, but the period of Judges doesn't end until Saul becomes the king. Samuel, the prophet, is actually the final judge. And so you're looking again... Uh, at big blocks of time, 400 years of patriarchs, 400 plus years of slavery, 400-ish years of, uh, of the period of judges. And then you move into uh, the period of the kings, which is a much longer period uh, that, that encompassed uh, probably about 500 years. And then you have the captivity of Babylon whenever Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem is destroyed uh, and uh, they are exiled. So from that moment, There's no longer a king in Israel. And so why is that significant to this? Well, we have to understand who the players are in early Israel if we're really going to appreciate what Jesus is launching into. And so bear with me for just a minute while I give us a little bit of a historical background here so that we understand uh, the, the context, not just textually, but historically of what we're looking at. So here they are now under the authority and the control of Rome. The Roman Empire has been uh, in power. They, they didn't just come to power at the time of Christ. They've already been a power for a couple of hundred years at least. And uh, as the, the Israel is somewhat reassembled into their homeland, they're still scattered. Uh, really, they're still scattered today. And even during the holo- after the Holocaust and World War II, you saw a large repatriation of the Jewish people back to Israel. That's still ongoing. Uh, and so, and it's been ongoing since the time of, since this time, uh, biblically. Uh, and so, what you see here is that at the end of the of the captivity. About 200 years before the birth of Christ, a group rises to power uh, and influence called the Sadducees. We all know uh, about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We, we read the terms, but if I were to go around the room this morning and say, uh, what is the origin of the Sadducees? Probably there wouldn't be but maybe one or two people that could give me, a, 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 a have an idea. The Sadducees were the scribes. They were the priests. And so when you look at the Sadducees, contextually and historically, what we're talking about is a group of people that were the Levites that had had been the keepers of the temple and temple worship uh, and tabernacle worship since the time of Moses. And so they have sustained through, and though the temple has been desecrated uh, by the Babylonians and the Romans, uh, and and the sacrificial line of worship has gone cold, it's stopped because of the desecration of the altar, uh, then the, the Sadducees are still here uh, clinging to this is the, the way to worship. This is what we're focused on. It's all about, we take the first five books of the Bible, the Torah the Hebrew people call it, uh, the books of Moses, and that's all that matters, and everything that we do, they didn't accept the rest of the prophets as scripture at that point, they just looked at the Torah, and so you've got this element of the Sadducees, now Jesus makes a distinction later that they did not believe in a resurrection, the Pharisees did. Uh, and so, but but where they came from, they've been around at the time of Christ for about 200 years. They have great power. They have great influence and, uh, and their, their focus is on we are going to strictly follow the law of Moses and nothing else. Then about 150 years before Christ, about 50 years or so after the Sadducees came to be, came the Pharisees. The Pharisees are more popular because the Pharisees are not just Levites and priests. The, the Pharisees are looking and they are, okay, we have to expand uh, what, what Moses was dealing with and the problems of the time of Moses are not the same problems that we have today. And we have the prophets, and so they were more open to the prophets. And so now they're talking about and what they and this becomes their problem, that they are giving equal weight to an oral law, a spoken law, to that of actual biblical law and scripture. And so as they as they come about, they are they are the, the ones who instituted the synagogues. The, the Sadducees are, the temple is the only place to worship, the sacrificial system is the only form of worship, the Sadducees are more devotion, or the Pharisees, excuse me, are more devotional. Uh, we are going to be very pious. We are going to govern our lives by this oral law coupled with the written law, and then they just keep adding things to it, to where it becomes this terrible cloak and weight of, of you know, you have to do it this way. Or you're in violation of the law. Problem is it's not written down anywhere. It's just tradition. Uh, and so, but, but the people are more accepting early of the Pharisees because they're more pragmatic. They're more, uh, let's, let's, ad- let's take the Bible and let's address very real issues by principle. And so they're well-intentioned, but they are corrupted by, by power and by their greed for authority and for attention and for elevation in society. So you've got these two primary groups. They are not political leaders, but they are spiritual leaders, the spiritual leaders of the nation. And so they have instituted this cloud of religious hierarchy and government over God's people in Israel uh, where there's conflict do we do we strictly worship in the temple or do we uh, or do we and there are things going on in the temple clearly uh, and then or are, are we going to uh, worship in the synagogue and and and, and expand uh, from just the first five books to also read and include the, the, the prophets now clearly, uh, Jesus goes to the synagogues and reads from the prophets. So he, 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 right there, he's he's including that, we would call it the canonization of the scripture, where it's tested and it's accepted as the word of God. And so Jesus now has grown. He has gone to John the Baptist in the wilderness. He is about to confront this religious hierarchy that's cloud over Israel. And... Uh, And he gets baptized, he comes up, God puts a stamp of approval on him. And then immediately the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted. That seems like an odd thing, but, but he's beginning ministry and he is beginning ministry, though he's God, he is going about ministry from his human standpoint because he's an example to us that, hey, you can do this. The Holy Spirit of God can empower you and can lead you and can guide you. So he goes through the temptation in chapter 4. So in Matthew chapter 4 there is the temptation of Christ and he comes down successfully off the mountain. His needs are tended to and then he's back here in Capernaum at the end of chapter 4. In verse 17 uh, of chapter 4 he begins to step up and get ready to start his ministry and he says uh, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand my kingdom the kingdom of heaven begins now and the jews misinterpret they they're they're not looking to the law that this sacrifice has to be made that atonement permanent atonement in the sacrifice of the messiah has to be made they're only looking at messiah as their king they're looking at jesus if you're messiah that means the romans are out of here you're going you're gonna to set things in order. But they miss the fact that Jesus has to first humble himself and offer himself up a sacrifice for our sin and raise from the grave. And so they're, they're missing that point. And so they're looking at Jesus. Now keep in mind that Matthew is written to the Jewish people and it presents Jesus as the king. All of the gospels are written to very specific people groups. And they present Jesus to that people group in a very specific way. For example, Mark is written to the Romans. The Romans would never accept a Jew as their king. That would be something that would be unthinkable to them. So Mark presents Jesus as a servant. Because they do look at the Jews as their servants. And so every gospel presents them in a different light. Matthew presents them to the Jews as their king. Here's your king. Here's Messiah. Uh, and so Jesus comes and says, listen, my kingdom is at hand. Repent. Not my kingdom is at hand. Pick up your sword. My kingdom is at hand. Repent. Look at where we are and look at what our needs are. And so Jesus then leaves. He begins to assemble his disciples. In the end of chapter 4, he gives the call of Peter and Andrew. Uh, In verse 21, we see the call of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, And so he is now uh, reaching out to them. Uh, In verse 23, he went about all of Galilee teaching in their synagogue. So Jesus is out and he's busy and he's teaching and he's preaching and he's ministering to people. And then he comes to chapter 5. And in chapter five now there's a, there's a crowd assembled and the synagogue can't hold the crowd and he's out on uh, the mountain and uh, he's on this mountain, <coughs> he gets set. this is uh, and he says here in verse one that when he was set, his disciples came unto him. So he's there this is this is not a spontaneous gathering, this is a prepared event. And Jesus now is formally launching, ministry and he's going to give them over the next three chapters an outline for what he's going to do and what his ministry is going to look like and so we see in the sermon of the mount the details are the principles of the kingdom which lay the foundation for the, the ministry of the lord jesus christ that's going to take place over the next three three and a half years schofield put said this the sermon on the mount is pure law And transfers the offense from the overt act to the motive. And so with that in mind, and then he he says, they, or the Jews, had reduced righteousness to mere ceremonialism. So what they've done is they've taken the true worship of God and they've reduced it to just a mechanical method ceremonially. The Sadducees did it one way. The Pharisees did it another But it's the same problem in principle. You've taken true, genuine worship of God and you've manipulated it down to a set of rules, of do's and don'ts and of it must be done this way. And so Jesus here... Uh, begins to confront that. Now, what he's confronting, we see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we're not going to get into it in the Beatitudes, but I do want to take just a moment to point out what I'm talking about here. Notice in chapter 5 and verse number 21. In chapter 5 here of Matthew, in verse 21, he says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. This is, this, you've heard, and this is what he says to put it in, our, in the way that we would say it. This is the way that we've always done it. This is the, this is the, this is our, our method. Notice Jesus says that to them. And then in verse 22, he says, but I say unto you. Again, in verse number 27, he says, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. Verse 28, but I say unto you. Now, it's not that what they said of old time is wrong, but Jesus is going to put a different focus on it because they're focused on the letter of the law and an act, and Jesus is more focused and concerned about what's the motivation behind it. Why do we do what we do? And I'm just going to tell you, and I'll, you'll hear me say this, if you're newer to, to Victory Baptist Church, you'll hear me say this on a fairly regular basis, uh, something along the lines of, we can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons and look great to the casual passerby but have a very displeased and unsatisfied God. That the God is, what we do is important, but who we are is more important. And so just, you know, and that's it's a good, what we are, who you are, is far more important than what you do. Who I am determines what I do. And so I want to be someone that's genuine and sincere. T.W. Hunt wrote on, in his book, The Mind of Christ, this about this passage. The Old Covenant was based on law. The New Covenant was based on the redemptive work of Christ for us. The Old Testament law dealt with the physical matters. It was to be obeyed strictly. The Sermon on the Mount deals with the spirit and the attitudes. It is concerned with the principles rather than the restrictions. We obey its principles by conforming to its spirit. I would rephrase that a little bit because... The way that we perceive things now is a little bit different than when this was written. I would say not that we are conforming to its spirit, that we are being transformed by its spirit. Uh, but there's, there's, Used to, everybody kind of got what you meant by that. Now we hear the word conform and we just think, oh, you're just trying to, you're just trying to make me what you want me to be. That, that's not what he's, the, God wants to transform us into what we should be. Uh, and so uh, when we understand that he concludes a statement here in the paragraph by saying each beatitude can, contains a principle about the way that God works in us so why do I need to understand the beatitudes because it tells me how God wants to work in my heart and life and it tells me what opens the door so that God can work in my heart and in my life a matter of fact uh, what, we, what he details here uh, this, this morning uh, in, in, in just an overall purview of now the Beatitudes themselves. In verse number three, we see our need for God. In verse number four, we see our brokenness. The next Beatitude shows us that we must be submissive to God and his plan and his word. The next one shows that we must be yearning for him if we would obtain him. The next one talks about our giving or doing for others. The next one talks about our heart being holy gods being completely given uh, over to the Lord. And then our seeking of reconciliation with God, our identification in Christ and with Christ. Uh, And then uh, we see that in verse number 10, but then in verses 11 and 12, there's an amplification of verse number 10. For example, uh, in verse 10, it says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. Verses 11 and 12 tell us uh, what that looks like and how we should respond to it. And so they, uh, they tie there together. Now, why is that important? Because the first... The first four Beatitudes show us the keys to God's heart. They show us what, what appeals to the Lord in his heart and his spirit. The second uh, half of the Beatitudes show us the keys to expressing Christ. I need to get access in my heart to God's heart so that he can do the work in my heart that's necessary to transform my life so that then my outward life begins to express Christ. The inward man must change first and then the outward man. If you're the kind of Christian whose outward man has changed because you're disciplined and you have character that shows a lot of strength. The problem is is that it's not necessarily pleasing to God. A lot of people can change everything about their outer person but never change inwardly. God wants to change us from the inside out. And so as we jump into this this morning, we're going to just look really at verse number three primarily here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what are we talking about? Here's the principle. Be poor in spirit. In other words, if I'm poor in spirit, I realize that I need God. What's wrong with most people in our society today is that they just don't need God. They don't see that they have a need for God. But a lot of Christians, they're religious or God is a part of their life but they really don't see that they need God for every detail of their life. In other words, we operate under the, under the habit of I'm going to take care of everything that I can take care of on my own and if I need God's help I'll let them know. That's, that's, that's not God's plan. Yeah. That's the way that we function culturally in society, especially if you're my generation or before. We're very reluctant to go to someone for help, even with uh, difficult things and there's something about we want to be able to figure it out we want to be able to solve our problem number one we want to we we're too proud to ask number two uh, that we don't want to be a bother and so uh, God says you can't do this without me and I don't want to just get involved whenever the wheels are falling off the wagon I want to be involved in every step of every process and problem in your life and so the principle is that I need to be poor in spirit what does poor mean here? The, because poor can mean a lot of things in our in our day and age today. you know I had I had uh, you know whenever we first moved to Tennessee years ago, uh, we had some family that lived close there and, and one of them was poor, and the other one uh, was thought they were poor and and by most standards, they're relatively poor. Neither one of them were wealthy by any stretch of the imagination but, uh, but one of them poor to one of them, poor meant we don't have enough food for supper and we don't know where we're going to get it. And for the other one, poor meant there's $500. The bank account's down to about $500. And so, and you know, to some people, they would consider themselves poor whenever, uh, whenever it's, you know, a higher amount than that. Oh, we're, we're running low. We're getting, in, we're getting in a bind here. So poor is kind of a relative term. What does poor mean? The word poor, the literal word, the Greek word here used for poor means literally to be reduced to a state of beggary. So if I'm poor in this context, by definition of the word, I am at a point where I'm out on the street begging for my survival. I can do nothing for myself. I am completely at the mercy of another. Why is that so important? Because until I realize that I'm completely at the mercy of God and can do nothing on my own, and he's the only place that I have to turn, I'm not poor in spirit and I'll never experience him the way that he wants me to experience him. Why? Because I'm in the way. Because I'm, uh, I'm involved in, uh, in solving my own problem and, uh, and I fail to see how desperate my need for God is. Listen, uh, you know, being to a point where, you know, there, there's only like three days worth of food left is, is getting desperate. Getting to the point where you've got small children and there's nothing to eat and you have to go uh, stake a, a spot out on the side of the road and ask for, uh, for help and someone's mercy is a whole new area of desperation. We can be hungry, our children are another matter, especially when they're small. And so I have to see the need even after salvation by the way say well pastor i get that you've got to see that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself and be completely bankrupt and uh, of any hope of self-salvation of being good enough of being that's what the law shows us and teaches us uh yes but it doesn't end there being poor in spirit doesn't end when i trust in christ as my savior being poor in spirit brings me to a place where i'm willing to say god i understand that no matter how good i try to be i'll never be good enough to measure up to you. And that's where we get off a lot of times in, our, in, our, in the world in which we live because we want to compor, compare ourselves with the people around us and uh, we can find somebody that makes us look pretty good. Well, I'm not such a bad person. I'm actually, I can go to some parts of, of, of the country and say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. It's not about measuring up to one another. It's about measuring up to him. Amen. He's perfect. He's holy. There's nothing lacking. There's something wrong with every human being, but there's nothing wrong with Jesus. Right. And until I realize that the standard that I have to live up to is Him, and I realize, well, wait a minute, I've already sinned. It's too late. I can never quite get there. It doesn't matter how much I clean up my act and how disciplined I get or how much better I do in the future, I'll never get there. Uh, because with every failure, the, the cap of how high I can go drops. He's already too high and lofty for me and for you too. And when I understand that, I need someone to get me the rest of the way. Jesus is the only one that can do it. And when I come to realize that I'm poor in spirit, I I get to a place where my spirit, my my self-reliance is bankrupt. By the way, that's great. And it's where we get to whenever we turn to Christ for salvation. But we should stay there for a lifetime. So, Pastor, why? Well, we retain, when we get saved, our tendency to sin. Yeah, he makes a new, he brings, or resurrects the spirit in us again. And he makes a new creature out of us. But I still have a great tendency to sin. No matter how long I've been saved, no matter how disciplined I become, I still find myself prone to wander. Why? Because it's our nature. And I want to battle against it, I can fight against it, but I must be mindful uh, that even as a person who's trusted Christ as my Savior, my natural tendency is to sin. Not only that, I have limitations. I have physical limitations. They are increasing with age. And so every day I'm more aware of physical limitations. I've learned things that I used to just push through. I better stop and listen to my old body as it's breaking down along the way these days. Uh, and so, but my, I, have, I have some physical limitations. I have mental limitations. No comments from the peanut gallery over there. I have, I have uh, My mind's not as sharp as it used to be. I'm old enough now that I'm beginning to realize that. I'm old enough now that, that physical things, I think about two or three different times this morning, my left ear has just popped and started ringing. It's just my hearing's getting worse, and, uh, and it just kind of flares up once in a while. And it used to be, I go to the doctor, hey, do you ever have ringing in your ears? No. Next time I go, I won't be able to say that anymore. It just, it just I'm getting old. And so, I believe it or not, I used to have hair. I know that young people can't understand that, and, uh, or wouldn't believe that unless they saw a picture, but, uh, but it'd have to be a pretty old picture at this point in my life. What I'm saying is that we have mental and physical limitations and as we have mental and physical limitations, we also have spiritual limitations. We're not all that we could be for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we never will be if we try to do it on our own. Because it's not about what I can do, it's about what he can do through me. And if I don't realize that it's what Jesus can do through me, then I'm never going to get... To a place where God can develop me and mold me in what he wants me to be. So how does that look to us practically? Well, number one, it provides us an opportunity to salvation. Becoming poor in spirit. Becoming bankrupt in spirit. Realizing that no matter how good I become, it's never going to be good enough to measure up to who and what Jesus Christ is to measure up to his law. By the way, he gave us the law to be our schoolmaster, the apostle Paul wrote, so that it proves to us that no matter how hard we try, we'll always fail. And that seems cruel. No, it's, it's the height of kindness because it proves that we can't do it. And when it proves and I accept that I can't do it, I come to a place where I'll go to the Lord and say, Lord, I can't do this. You have to do it. As long as there's a reliance on me, I'm never going to truly experience Him, and so we consider here it's an opportunity to salvation. Look at Luke chapter 18. We're going to come back here, but we're going to bounce a few other passages this morning. In Luke chapter number 18, and verse nine. Luke chapter number 18, and beginning in verse number nine, there's a parable that Jesus gives of a Pharisee and a publican as He's teaching. And he spake in this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So there's the problem. Whenever we can attain righteousness on our own, we feel empowered to despise those who have not attained it. We look down on those that have not gotten there. We We want to make evaluations and pass judgment upon those that haven't reached the level that we feel like that we've reached. Notice what he says again. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. We've established who the Pharisees are, the publican or the other extreme of that spectrum. One is held in high regard and considered to be pious and religious and holy. Uh, the other is despised and rejected and cast aside. Uh, and so they're loathed and, uh, and, and hated in, uh, in the culture. And so the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. In verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. He's describing essentially in his prayer what publicans are. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. see what he's saying here. He's the one that thinks himself to be righteous and that the culture at large would look at and say, he's righteous, but all it's about is him. Look what I've done. To be poor in spirit is to realize there's nothing that I've done that's worth looking at, Jesus. Let me look at what you've done. Amen. Notice what he says in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down, or excuse me, verse 13. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You notice this, gets this picture. God, look what I've done. I worship you. I fast two days a week. I tithe off everything that you give me. I do this. I do that. I'm not like those publicans over there. They extort people. And they do this. And here's the very man. And the Pharisee's looking up. There's the other man and he's just... He can't even bring himself to look God in the eye. And he's pounding his chest. While this man's over here singing his own praises as if God's going to be impressed. And he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I am what he says I am in his pious prayer. God, help me. This man stands bankrupt before God. This man stands empty of self. This man stands with no one to turn to but Jesus. Jesus concludes the parable in verse 14 by saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. What we must realize is that when we're poor in spirit, that the poor in spirit see their need. Until I become poor in spirit, I'll never truly see the need that I have for Christ. Well, Pastor, I saw that whenever I, when I knew I needed to be saved, and it's still true now. Just because he saved your soul doesn't mean that you've reached some sense of spiritual perfection. And when I began to see myself as righteous, I began to lose the ability to remain poor in spirit. And I began to become self-reliant instead of Christ-reliant. And I stopped growing. And I start getting puffed up. And I start becoming pharisaical in my attitude. The poor in spirit see their need. Every one of us should be sitting here this morning, regardless of what station in life we are, what our backgrounds are, where we are spiritually in our life. The most spiritual person in the room this morning is thinking in their heart, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Yes. The person that's having an argument in their head this morning, as you sit here saying, Well, I'm not that bad, you're missing the point. We're still that bad. So, Pastor, but God's changed so much in my life and praise God for it, but I'm still that bad. But God, you just said, Pastor, you don't know where I was. It doesn't matter. You still got a long way to go. So, you don't even know me, how dare you say that about me? I'm saying it about me too. That's the spirit and the attitude that gets the attention of God and opens his heart to you. So, Pastor, but God loves us all. Yes, he does. But until we open our heart to him, there's not much that, we, that he can express. You know, I can, I can love Pedro and Braden down here. But if they're closed off and they won't respond, it doesn't change the fact that I love them. But it does change very much the fact of what, that, what amount of that love they receive. It's not up to God. It's up to our spirit and our attitude. If I'm not willing to understand, God, how desperately I need you, the poor in spirit see their need. When I can sit here this morning and say, I desperately need the Lord in this area of my life, in this area of my life, and my heart is just full and ringing with all of the crises in my life and my heart, though everything may look okay on the outside, I'm becoming poor in spirit. You say, Pastor, but that's a bad thing. I'm in shambles. No, because when you're in shambles, then the Lord can begin to fix things. He can't fix you until you're broken. He can't fix me until I'm broken. Brother Mike does a lot of remodeling work. If you, uh, When he goes in, before he starts building something new, he has to tear out the old. He can't put anything new on top of the old. The old has to go before the new can come in. Until I realize there's things in my life that need to be destroyed, there's no room and there's no opportunity for Jesus to build anything. Not only does the poor in spirit see their need, but the poor in spirit are willing to repent. They have genuine sorrow for their sin. See, there's the person that says, Okay, you got me. Yeah, I I believe. Yeah, I do that. I see the Bible says it's a sin. So that means I'm a sinner. I get it. But there's no sorrow for that sin. There's no acknowledgement that I've wronged God. There's no relationship that causes me to regret that I've wronged God. See, I can go and I can do something that uh, is maybe not that kind to somebody that I don't know. And it might bother me a little bit for a little while, but I'll get over it pretty quick. But if I go and do something that hurts somebody that I love deeply, then I'm going to have great regret with that. I'm not going to be able to sleep until I make that right. I'm not going to be able to live with myself until I do something about it. Why? Because I'm sorry about it. Why am I sorry about it? Because I love them. Until I come to a place where I'm willing to repent of my sin, not just for salvation, but for maintaining my close relationship with my loving Heavenly Father, I'm never going to really have what I need. The poor in spirit are willing to repent. Not only that, the poor in spirit put their their trust in another. We're self-reliant by nature. We've talked about that already. I'm not going to belabor the point. But when I become poor in spirit, I'm willing to to put my trust in another we we do that when we go to a, when we get so desperate that we're willing to go to the doctor my yeah. wife and i are not doctor people okay we've known people all of our life it seems like every time they get a sniffle they're running to an emergency room and i'm thinking how in the world can they afford to go to the emergency room every time they get a sniffle and it's really i mean it's just mind-boggling to us it's just not our world we don't we don't live there i'm not criticizing the people that that's the way they operate, and they do, uh, I'm just saying that, that we don't relate. We we could never afford the $50 or $40 copay to go to the doctor, let alone afford uh, however much money it costs to go to uh, an emergency room. If we're not bleeding out or dying, we're just suffering through it, right? Uh, and so, I put it this way, the last time I went to a doctor was because I was on the verge of needing to be hospitalized because of COVID. Uh, And the time I went to the doctor when I was sick before that, I can't even remember my mom would have taken me when I was a child. We just don't go. And it's not that we don't trust doctors or don't like doctors, it's just for most of our adult life, we haven't been able to afford insurance or had it provided, praise the Lord for our church here that does, but we still hardly go because it's just not in our, It's not in our mental thinking process to go. I'm bad. And if I'm bad, she's worse. And when she does go and the doctor says, do this, 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 and orders this test, this test, and this test, I can just about guarantee you that she's not going to go get the test done. So, well, why? Because she don't hurt. Because she's not feeling sick. And until she does, she's not going to go. And I'm right there with her. Not saying that that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's where we are. But if we get sick enough, we go. If we hurt bad enough, we'll go. And when we go, if we hurt bad enough or we're sick enough, we'll actually try to do what they said to do. It's one thing to go because you should and be told what to do. It's another thing to feel bad enough that you actually do it. And when the doctor runs the test and you get them because you hurt so bad and says, if you don't do this, you're gonna be dead in six months and we start paying attention and whatever the doctor says, we're ready to do. Chemo, radiation, surgery, what have you, sign me up. Now I'm willing to take my life and to put it in your hands. Now I'm willing to not question what your, what your advice is. Now I'm willing to accept your opinion. So what does that mean to us, Pastor? That means that until I'm ready spiritually to put my life out of my hands and put it in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ and the authority structure that he set before me and trust him, I'm never going to have everything that God wants me to have. I'm never going to become everything that God wants me to become. Why? Because that's God's way. And my refusal to do so is just my own self-dependence and pride. Do I trust the Lord? And in most cases, because of our human nature, we're not going to get to the place where we trust the Lord enough until we're desperate. But the poor in spirit, go to him now. It's far better. I mean, those of you that, like, go to the doctor for, like, regular maintenance stuff and, you know, do what he says and mind your health and eat right and do all those kind of things and and you're really religious about it, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But you do it because you realize, hey, this is going to help me in the long run. Until I get to that place in my spiritual life with Christ, I'm never going to be all that God wants me to be. Be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit causes me to see my need. When I see my need, I become desperate for Christ and I turn to him. Secondly, this morning, consider that it's an opportunity to sanctification. It's an opportunity to sanctification. What do I mean by that? I mean, sanctification is simply this. It is to be set apart. And I would add two. Because in our world, church-wise, the emphasis is always being what we're set apart from. That's the wrong way to look and go about it. It doesn't matter what, I don't don't have time to focus on what I don't want to be. I want to spend my time focusing on who I want to be. I'm not concerned about how do I look compared to that crowd. I'm concerned, how do I look compared to Jesus? Amen. And so when I talk about sanctification, what we're talking about is being transformed by the Spirit of God into the image of Christ. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and most everybody in here could quote those two verses. It is an opportunity to sanctification. It is being willing to grow as a new creature in Christ. And, and, and we're going to come back in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But it's a process. Romans 12.1 and 2. I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. I must offer myself up. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service pastor you want me to sacrifice my whole self to God everything it is our reasonable service Jesus says the apostle Paul writes God's not even really asking that much like we think he is it's reasonable the request that he's making and be not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, what I'm saying here is this, that I must be willing to grow as a new creature in Christ. Yes, when I got saved, God made me a new creation in Christ. Praise God for that. But he didn't want me to stay in that infant state. He wants me to grow, to mature, to develop. How do i do that someone who's poor in spirit just two thoughts and we'll move on to our final point this morning is willing to learn the longer i pastor the more i realize how few people are actually willing to learn and by the way the person that you're learning from doesn't have to be smarter than you in order for you to learn from them and sometimes that's a problem Sometimes you run across people that are just really intelligent and they're thinking, well, you know what? I'm a lot smarter than you. I'll figure it out better than you can teach it. So I don't need you anymore. What I'm saying this morning is if I'm poor in spirit and somebody has some expertise in an area that I don't, it doesn't matter whether I'm smarter than them or they're smarter than me. What matters is they know something that I need and I don't. And I'm going to humble myself and be taught. Why? Because I'm poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are willing to learn. God, teach me. God, show me. I I didn't do great in school. I I didn't like didn't care for school a whole lot. Uh, I liked history. uh, But when it came to other things, especially English and higher math, I I just really... I didn't get it, the English especially. I just didn't register. And I really never applied myself that much. We moved around a lot. There are a lot of different reasons why, but ultimately the bottom line is is that I didn't like it so I didn't apply myself. I learned some because I was forced to. I made myself learn enough to keep my grades high enough to be able to participate in sports. But did I reach my potential? No. Academically, not on your life. Why? Because I just wasn't that willing to apply myself to it. And that's a lot of people in their Christian life. Listen, if I'm not willing to learn, I'm not going to learn much. Well, I'm willing to come to church, pastor. Yeah, and you'll learn some things while you're here. But you're not going to learn as much as if you came with an open and willing and prepared heart, a, a, a ready, dry sponge waiting to soak up what God gives you. And so sometimes... We're so saturated with everything that's going on in life and the world around us that when we come in and God's word gets poured on us that there's no, there's no absorption factor left. We need to be wrung out so that we can absorb something else. This is, we ought to start doing, this is a, a funny term for this, you ought to dry out before you come to church. If you've got an alcohol problem, you really ought to dry out before you come to church. <laughs> but we ought to dry out so we come ready to absorb. We ought to come humble be willing to learn not should i just not only should i be willing to learn but i must be willing to change be transformed by the renewing of your mind if i'm not willing to change hey i learned it pastor are you proud of me I'm not going to change but i learned it i've been this way too long i can't change now and that attitude will doom you to a life of christian poverty Spiritual poverty. I need to come to a place where I realize that I'm willing to change. When I say willing to change, I'm not talking about willing to change a little minor thing or two. I'm talking about willing to change everything. I'm a living sacrifice. God, if you speak to me about it, it's changed. And by the way, I say that and in our minds we're thinking, okay, I'm going to change this and change that and change this. And we're thinking about all the externals. Wrong focus. The heart must change first. The values must change. My values should reflect the the values of Christ, not the culture. My priorities should reflect the priorities of Christ, not the culture. My agenda should be the agenda of Scripture, not the agenda of this world. What I do outwardly is simply a reflection of who I am inwardly. We need to learn to get our focus off of the outer and on the inner. God, change me. If you speak to me, I'll change. If you you come to my life and you address things in me, I'll change. Lord, I'm yours. It's yours. It's all yours. Show me and it's done. Why? Because I'm not resisting because I'm poor in spirit. I'm not resisting because I'm humble before God. And then lastly, consider that it's an opportunity to search. It's an opportunity to search. Well, what do we search? Well, that search begins, first of all, with our own hearts. I must search. In Revelation chapter 3 and verses 14 through 19, we see the message to the church of Laodicea. The final states of apostasy. And he says to the church there in verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich. Notice that it's the attitude. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is Jesus speaking. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten by zealous. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Next verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock. What's he saying, Pastor? He's saying, listen, the poor in spirit see themselves truthfully. Till I'm willing to see myself truly as who I am, God can't do much with me. Am I willing to say like David said, Lord, try me and see if there be any wicked way in me? Realizing that when he said that, he had already tried himself and purged out everything that he could identify God, I think I've got it. Examine me and make sure that I didn't miss anything. Show me my blind spots. Show me what I can't see. Pastor, I don't have any blind spots. Yes, you do. We all do. We all have areas in our life that we can't see. The poor in spirit see themselves truthfully. Am I willing to see myself truthfully? Or whenever someone in love points out an, era, an area in my life where I need to grow, do I get offended and withdraw and run away? Do I get angry feeling that I've been attacked? Do I become defensive or do I accept the reality of who and what I am? The poor in spirit see themselves truthfully. What I am. In reality, compared to the Word of God and the person and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about what I what I am compared to the people I go to church with, the people that I work with, the family members that I go to see, the people that live in my neighborhood. What am I, who am I compared to Jesus? Who am I compared to his word? The poor in spirit see themselves truthfully. Not only that, the poor in spirit stay focused on their need. The poor in spirit don't get to a point where they say, Okay, I've made it. I'm better. God, thank you for fixing me. I'll take it from here. The poor in spirit recognize that their need is ongoing. Verse number 3 of Romans chapter 12. It's a forgotten verse that goes with verses 1 and 2. So it's just as important. For I say, through the grace of God, given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself... More highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt with every man the measure of faith. Listen, I need to understand this morning that if I would be poor in spirit, then I am going to see that I've got an opportunity to search out who I really am, to ask God to search out who I really am, because until He does, I'm stuck where I'm at. Two thoughts about this as we conclude this morning. Number one, the poor in spirit see themselves truthfully. Number two, this poor in spirit stay focused on their need. Now, it's not I was going to tell you this morning by way of illustration here. Long-time, long-term Christians tend to be enslaved by self-righteousness. People that have been saved a long time, whose life Christ has saved, traumatically or dramatically changed began over time to feel as if I'm the best Christian that I know. I'm the best, I'm the best Christian in my Sunday school class. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the most productive Sunday school teacher at Victory Baptist Church. I'm the, most, I'm the kindest greeter at the doorway. I'm the one that everybody points to and say, man, that person was really good to me whenever I came here. I'm not saying that those aren't good things to be. I'm saying it's a bad thing to think that you are that. Because when I began to think that about myself and I began to become wealthy, as Jesus put it to the church of Laodicea, instead of poor. Mm-hmm. The poor in spirit stay focused on their need. No matter how much God changes me, I still have more that needs to be changed. Yes, amen. No matter how much I grow, I still have more growing to do. As we finish this morning, the poor in spirit, or to be poor in spirit is the opportunity of a lifetime. Why? Because when I'm poor in spirit, I can glean more from the Word of God than I've ever gleaned. When I'm poor in spirit, I can walk more closely to the Savior than I've ever walked. When I'm poor in spirit, I've got my eyes completely off of my own ability. I'm completely humbled and surrendered to Him working through me. And when I'm willing to let God come in and assume control of all that I am, then I put myself in a position that through my poverty, he expresses his power and riches and draws all men into him. It is the frame of mind that focuses me on my weakness and on his greatness. Why is it so great? Why is it so important to be poor in spirit? Because when I'm poor in spirit, I'm not thinking, oh, I got to be better at this, I got to clean this up, I've got to fix this. When I'm poor in spirit, God, I can't, but you can't. God, I'm not able, but you are able. God, I don't know what to do, but you know what to do. God, I don't know where to go, but you know where to send me. God, I don't know how to solve the problem. I don't know what to say, but I know you can tell me. When I'm poor in spirit, I put myself in a position to where the heart of God wants to look down and say, ah, Somebody's finally getting it. Somebody is finally standing down there, looking up at my throne and saying, Father, I can't get there. I I can't climb, I can't jump, I can't soar to where you are. Would you come? I love it when I haven't seen my grandkids for a while. I got home the other day, and my oldest son's three kids were spending the night, and my grandson there that's two, they, my grandkids call me Pops. He didn't have much vocabulary yet, and he can't, he can't pronounce consonants at the beginning of words. So it's ops. And so the minute that the key turns in the door lock I can hear from the other side of the door ups, (laughs) ups, ups and my hands are usually full and by the time I get the door open and get about a foot or two in and get the door closed he's coming around the corner full steam hands up my hands are too full to pick him up but that's not going to deter him If I can't pick him up, he just grabs hold of my bear hugs my leg. (laughs) Until I unburden my arms and can reach down and pick him up. And then he lays his shoulder down right there. And just absorbs the moment. When I'm poor in spirit. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care what everything else is going on. The whole world stops. When I become aware of the presence of my father and I just run with arms open and say, God, I can't do it, but you can. God, I can't can't help anybody, but you can. Would you reach down and would you pick me up to where you are so I can lay my head on your shoulder and trust you because I'm helpless. Until I realize my helplessness, I'm not poor in spirit. Until I'm poor in spirit, I waste opportunities. The great door of opportunity rests upon me becoming poor in spirit, that I might be fully dependent upon him and zero dependent upon him.